0: Amen. Let's pray. God, you are holy, and we thank you that you are not like us. We thank you that you're worthy of our praise and that we get to come together this morning and do just that. And so as we enter into this time of the corporate consideration of your word, we ask for your blessing on it. We pray not only that we would be made different by it, uh, but that we would leave from here, continuing in our consideration of you God, we overestimate our love for you, and we underestimate our need for you, and it's precisely for that reason that we pray your grace on this time, by your Spirit, and in the name of your Son. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning, and uh, welcome once again to White Chapel. My name is Kevin Collada, and I am one of the life group leaders here, and it is a great privilege to be uh, with you this morning, considering God's Word. Our text this morning is going to come from Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and flip there. Uh, If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know we've been in the middle of a topical series that we do uh, every so often, Uh, this one called Real Talk that covered topics from apologetic defense of the faith to gender and sexuality that Pastor Bill let us in last week, Uh, and so I am especially grateful that uh, I get the softball topic of Christian community and fellowship this morning, although uh, like most of you, I left last week after Bill was finished and thought, man, I feel really sorry for the guy that has to follow him the next week. (laughs)
1: So we're going to be looking at
0: Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read specifically verses 1 through 7 and then 11 through 16. Um, And the, the point that we're going to try to take out of this passage really has to do with the description of Christian community. What that looks like and how we go about trying to attain that. I will um, confess to you up front, or, or maybe warn you on the front end here, that um, we will not have the time to unpack all of the details that are in this passage. Uh, there's there's more to this than we could ever hope to cover in the 30 minutes or so that we have. And so, I encourage you. After we leave here, we'll, we'll scratch the surface of some of this as it pertains to what Christian community looks like. Uh, but really encourage you to spend some time, uh, even today, reading through the entire chapter there, Ephesians 4. And thinking about what it says uh, as it pertains to the way that we one another. That's going to be one of the focuses of our time together. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, and then 11 through 16. So it starts like this. This is Paul preaching God's word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who was over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry By craftiness and in deceitful schemes, but rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, the thing that I think stands out about this passage fundamentally is the description of authentic Christian community. And like I said, there's, there's a whole other host of details that we could get into that this passage outlines for us. But fundamentally, as believers, what it points to is our role and our participation in the body of Christ, and then specifically what that leads to within each of us individually. And so all of us, as believers, are part of this body where we get to play an active role in the edification and the sanctification of one another, And the passage goes on to describe some of the ways in which God historically has equipped the members of his church to do this. Uh, But for today, where I want to camp out is specifically on that notion of authentic Christian community, specifically biblical fellowship, why we need it, and what it does to us. What's interesting about this is that I think all of us have some measure of experience about being part of a community that, that changes us somehow. Even though we're going to be looking at this within the context of the church here, uh, I think it could be fair to argue that all communities, on some level, change us. When we're rightly connected to other people or meaningfully connected to other people in some way, we're often led to do things that we wouldn't do otherwise, and over time, as we practice that, that has a uniquely transformative effect on us. And so the context here in Ephesians 4 has to do with growing up into Christ-likeness as we participate in the community that is the body of Christ. But communities in general carry with them this transformative capacity. That's not something that's unique to the church, although the church is doing a very specific thing that we'll talk about today. And so this matters for us because all of us find ourselves participating in communities of some kind— If you're a believer this morning, you are in Christ and part of his body, whether you recognize that or not, but that is probably one of many communities that you're a part of. Being in relationships with other people is inevitable. There's really no way for us to live apart from one another, and so the question isn't whether we'll be in community with other people, but what kind of communities we find ourselves in and then, by extension, what effect they're having on us. And the challenge here is that usually our participation in those communities is not as overt as what we're seeing right now. Most of the communities that we exist in go unexamined for us on a day-to-day basis. We participate in these communities, and without thinking a whole lot of it, they change us over time, often without our knowledge. By God's grace, we have moments in our lives where we're made aware of the transformative effects of that community, for better or worse. And I think every one of us in the room can probably think of a time where we did something we wouldn't have done otherwise, strictly because of the people who were next to us doing that very same thing. When uh, I was in high school, I, uh, I, was, I was unregenerate, but by God's grace, I had a really good relationship with my parents. And part of that relationship was a pretty healthy fear of getting into trouble. Uh, This was probably due to the fact that my brother broke them in by getting into lots of trouble before me. Uh, But I grew up with a really keen awareness that you didn't want to end up in trouble with mom and dad. And so I balanced this sort of delicately with the group of friends that I was with because they didn't necessarily have that same fear established for them. And I remember in particular, uh, at the end of my high school experience, uh, a moment in time where I was really aware of, of that tension. I was aware of being called into doing something that I might not do otherwise, strictly because of the company that I was keeping. Like most high school boys, uh, we spent a lot of our time coming up with ways to prank one another. And just as a, an aside to anyone who's in the room that can identify with that, that always goes too far like prank wars always end poorly there's really not an example I can think of where you don't get to a point and say yeah that was that was the line and we just crossed it in our case our favorite prank was actually to put something sticky underneath the car door handle of one another and then hide in waiting to watch the response of the person that unknowingly came out and stuck their hand underneath the car door uh, while they were getting in and as you might imagine uh, the, the one-upsmanship uh, that is associated with being young men um, led us to sort of bigger and better and prolonged pranks each time. And in one case in particular, we had a friend that had been the target of these pranks for a couple of years, actually, and, uh, and we, we located him. He was, he was at someone else's house. He, he was choosing not to hang out with us at the time. And, uh, and we located him without a whole lot of... This is, this, is before, this is before the smartphone revolution, so we had to work a little bit harder to find out where he was. When we did, there was no question what we were going to do. We were absolutely certain we were going to go uh, wherever his car was, and uh, I think in this case it was peanut butter we were spreading underneath his car door handle. And so when we got to the neighborhood, we were, we were uh, a little bit disappointed to find that it was a gated community, But this didn't stop us, because we had a mission, and there wasn't really anything that was going to deter us from that mission. And so if you can imagine, there were four of us in high school, just a few months from graduation, um, lifting one another another over the fence of a gated community, sort of like landfall. Uh, We quickly located his car, and we spread the peanut butter underneath the car door handle, and then we retreated into the bushes to wait for him to come out and find it. This was probably about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and so you can imagine that the surprise to finding four high school boys in your bushes was probably not one that any of the neighbors responded real well to. And so, of course, without too much time passing, there was a neighbor walking their dog at night, and I distinctly remember this individual making eye contact with me on the other side of the bush. And we sustained gazes for a few moments, and in that moment... I realized the stupidity of what I was doing. Not up until that point, not buying the peanut butter or climbing the fence or getting behind the bush to start with, but when that man's eyes met mine with his dog on the leash there in the middle of the night, all I could think was, what am I doing and how will I explain this to my parents? <laughs> the, the, the very real threat that this guy would call the police or maybe do something worse was present In that moment. And it was as if I was coming up from underneath water and recognized that this was probably not something I would have chosen to do on my own, but here I was, far more susceptible to the pressure and encouragement of my peers than maybe I once thought. Uh, thankfully, he did not call the police. We stayed locked there for a minute or two, and then he moved on. Uh, and once my heart rate returned to normal, uh, it took a long time to think about how I got in that position to start with, and we only printed him like two more times after that, and then we were really done. No more gated communities. And I share that because I think it's, it's, a, it's a helpful reminder, at least it was for me, even, again, at 18 years old, um, that community has this, this capacity to make us do things that we wouldn't do otherwise. Right, We've got this fundamental need to be in relationship with one another. And then once we're in those relationships, they carry transformative effects. Now, I don't think that's by mistake. I think this is actually part of God's design for us. I think think that need for community is actually part of our image-bearing nature. We know that God himself exists in community. We see that from the opening pages of Genesis. Uh, Just a few chapters later, uh, we see that the, the one thing that God calls not good in the creation account is that man finds himself alone. Uh, and then if you fast forward all to the New Testament, the, the most severe form of church discipline is being cut off from community, cut off from God's people. And so this desire for community or for, for meaningful relationships, I think is, is normative. I think we have that need, and it's a fundamentally good thing. And I think the transformative capacity of those communities is also, by extension, uh, a a part of God's design. Neither one of those things are by mistake. But like all things, when we're confronted with one of our needs and the opportunity to fulfill it, we've got to check ourselves to make sure that we're aligning that with God's Word. We've got to check ourselves that our need for relational intimacy with one another, that, that, that our inevitability of community and the transformation that comes with it, is being fulfilled in a way that God calls best. Because doing anything else is going to lead us to a path that looks like something other than Christ. And so the question for us today is, what kind of community does God want us to participate in, and what will it do to us in the process? What are his commands for the community that we find ourselves in, namely here, this one, the body of Christ, and then what is the effect that comes from that? Ephesians 4 shows us that biblical fellowship is designed not only to fulfill our need for that relational intimacy with one another, but also to conform us into the image of Christ. And most of us live our lives as if we're going to fulfill that need somewhere else, and then we're surprised when the result looks like something other than being conformed to the image of Christ. That, that calling for biblical fellowship is an intimidating one. And it's an exposing one for us, and I think for too many, myself included, it often goes unfulfilled, or worse, unattempted. It sounds like more work than maybe it might be worth, and at the end of the day, it's just easier to go home and watch television than it is to make meaningful connections with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Or worse yet, uh, it's uh, easier just to settle for some imitation fellowship That's probably nothing more than maybe the neighborhood fantasy football league I participate in. And so this call for biblical fellowship is one that's specific and unique to the church, and it's distinct from other kinds of relationships that we find in our lives. There's a prerequisite for biblical fellowship that is being made alive by the grace of God that we'll get into later. But for most of us, even believers, what we settle for is just friendship, And so if you can visualize this on a scale of relational depth, what you have on one end is friendship, the standard for which is really not very high at all. These are typically casual relationships that might be defined by some kind of common interest, but most often what they're defined by is just convenience. These are the people that we're exposed to the most on a regular basis, and we form relationships with them of varying degrees of depth and meaningfulness. These might be coworkers or neighbors or online communities, like I mentioned a moment ago. But we don't pause to consider the way in which those relationships could be leveraged within the body of Christ for meaningful fellowship. Fellowship, by, by contrast, on the other end of that spectrum, are the kind of intentional relationships with your brothers and sisters that involve things like openness and accountability and vulnerability. And I think it's not surprising to see that most of us avoid those at all costs. Or we dress up some of our friendships, even with our brothers and sisters, to make them appear as if they meet the high calling for biblical fellowship, when in actuality, they don't. We were sharing and, and considering this at the, the Forge men's breakfast a few months ago, and uh, one of the men at my table compared this as the difference between um, snorkeling with some of your friends versus scuba diving with some of your buddies, or, or some, of your, some of your brothers, right? There, there's a difference in depth there that's important to recognize. There's nothing wrong with friendship. As a matter of fact, you, you need some of those relationships, uh, quite frankly, for the believers in the room, those friendships are where a lot of your ministry is going to take place. But only biblical fellowship has the capacity to transform us into the image of Christ, like we saw in the passage that we read just a moment ago. Only biblical fellowship can actually sharpen us and turn us in to that which God desires for us. And, and unfortunately, And Instead of pursuing that kind of biblical fellowship with one another, what we settle for is friendship with the world. And the problem that comes with that is that the transformative effects of those communities that we find ourselves in, if we find ourselves in a community that's defined by something other than biblical fellowship the way God defines it, then our lives end up looking no different from anybody else's. And we wonder why we struggle with the same things and we want the same things as the rest of the world John Piper likes to joke that the reason that, that the world doesn't ask believers for a reason for the hope that is within them, as referenced in 1 Peter 3, is because they have no, they have no reason to. It's because they look at our lives and they look just like everyone else's. We go from, from the high calling of being ambassadors for Christ to just being apologists for the world. Uh, when I was a child, my, my mother used to like to ask me, uh, if everyone jumped off a bridge, would Would you? And I was, I was smart enough to know that the answer to that question was supposed to be no, but in actuality, the answer is what? It's, of course it's yes. Of course the answer is yes, <laughs> right? And how do we know? I know that because I was hanging in the bushes with a jar of peanut butter at 18. I, I know that because as an adult, it might not be jumping off of a bridge, but it might be having the right job or living in the right neighborhood. Or having a longer vacation, or, or having something that compares to the rest of the world that I can measure my success by. Because my vision of the good life is informed by the communities that I participate in. And if I'm not careful, I'll find out that I'm a lot more susceptible to the calls of this life than I thought I was. Just like at 18, I was a lot more susceptible to doing the silly thing that my friends were doing. As an adult, we just get taller. Nothing really changes. We do the same things that our friends are doing, and we wonder why our lives don't look more like Christ. But biblical fellowship, the way that we're going to try and define it this morning, is a whole lot more than just friendship. Biblical fellowship, as I said a moment ago, has the capacity to transform us into the image of Christ. All community will transform you into something. But only biblical fellowship can transform you into the image of Christ, and it's through participation in his body. As we participate in this spiritual body to which we've been called, we discover that that analogy is a whole lot more robust than it might seem at first. The concept of a body carries with it a mutual reliance and interconnectedness that we see reflected in our physical bodies. And in the same way that our physical body couldn't function properly if all of the parts were not in harmony with one another, so the spiritual body that we're a part of by the new birth is predicated on that same kind of harmony. And that harmony is the fellowship that we're called to. Most of us act as if our lives in this body have no bearing on the other people sitting around us, and nothing could be further from the truth. John MacArthur in one of One of his best sermons, which is saying a lot on this very topic, said that the true church is an organism, not an organization. Amen. So fellowship's hard. I won't stand up here and pretend as if that's not true or that it looks perfect in my life, but it's also not optional. Thankfully, God has not left us to define this on our own. We read a passage out of Ephesians 4 this morning. That was, that was one of several that I had considered using as sort of a case text for this topic. But if you go beyond that, you'll see that concept of biblical fellowship is, is a, a very common one throughout the New Testament. It's typically referred to uh, or translated, uh, the term that's translated fellowship is koinonia or koinoneto. And we see that about 38 times throughout the New Testament, both in noun and verb form. But then in addition to that, there are another 30-plus commands that end or include the term one another throughout the New Testament. And when we consider those, when, when when we sort of survey those as a whole in the New Testament, we start to get a really practical understanding of how it is that we're supposed to participate in biblical fellowship with one another. So it's not just that we've been called to this community that is the body of Christ, and then God just leaves us to our own to figure out how to tend to one another. But he gets very specific in the books of the New Testament, giving us direction and examples of what it looks like to participate in that spiritual body together. I'd encourage you to, to take some time to survey these on your own at some points. This is this is one of my sort of favorite annual Bible studies: is to think about the things that I'm supposed to be doing for the rest of you that I don't do very well. But but this is highlighted by one particular command that shows up on its own 14 times in the New Testament, and that is the call to love one another. Um, incidentally, the second most frequent one another command in the New Testament is to greet one another with a holy kiss. I will let you determine what that looks like on your own at some point, okay? But 14 times, 14 instances of loving one another that shows up in the New Testament. And I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that both in, the past, in, in Ephesians 5, as well as uh, we have a, a sort of a parallel passage. The, the parallel passage for Ephesians 4 is 1 Corinthians 12. That, that's actually uh, specifically where we get the analogy of the body, Okay, although it shows up in other places. But in both Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 13, Paul goes on to talk about how what endures to this day, after faith and hope, is love that the greatest of these is love, and particularly within the context of the body of Christ, it's loving one another that really covers and summarizes so many of these other one another commands that were given. But if you're like me, you look at that list and, and you're easily overwhelmed by it because you know that your own life doesn't match up to it. Uh, if, you, if you read that list and you feel sort of insufficient, that's probably a good place to start. Because I think the temptation is to read that list... At least, at least this is true for me and I think probably for many of the other men or at least type A personalities in the room. We read that list and we treat it like our, like our checklist. And we say, love one another. Got it. No problem. Done. Serve one another. Got it. Greet. Not with a holy kiss, but yes, we'll do that. right?" And, and, we, and we take that as sort of our marching orders and we just set out to do that in our own strength without looking back. But if we try to fulfill those commands apart from love, apart from sort of that fundamental command that shows up so often. And Paul tells us that it's little more than a clanging gong, that we're just going through the motions with one another. And I don't think there's anything honoring to God in that. I don't think fulfilling those commands in our own strength is actually what he intended for us when he called us to this body. And so I want to challenge you to think about biblical fellowship and the one another commands that really spell that out for us in the New Testament. I want you to think about that as an invitation to know God more. Not just to serve the brother or the sister sitting next to you. You should do that. But if that's all you're doing, and it doesn't lead you or him or her to know God more and to cherish Christ more with their lives, then I would submit to you that that's falling really short of what God intended for us. Because when our hearts are rightly captivated by an image of who God is, then these commands, these these one another commands of the New Testament, come a whole lot more naturally. And they come from the right heart. And it's easy to do them in love. And we understand when we're captivated by this image of who God is, that to love God is to love his body, of which Christ is the head. That these things are inseparable, but if they don't start and end with a deeper knowledge of who God is, then I think we've missed the point. I would challenge you to consider in your own life, as a practical application of this, that the greatest gift you can give to the brother or the sister sitting next to you right now is a heart devoted to God. The greatest gift you can give your spouse, your children, the people in your life group is a heart devoted to God. When we do that, and we submit ourselves to him, and we awe at who he is, these things are done in the right spirit. And thankfully, he's not left us alone to do that either. He's given us his word and his people to help conform us into the image of a son, to help us behold him. A few weeks ago, Matt stood up here, and he encouraged us, pursue God with his people by your side and his word in your hearts. And I don't think there's a better way to say that. That when we pursue God, when we we put all of these efforts under the header of pursuing and knowing and loving God, they all find their right place. When our aim is to know God better and to love him more, and we take personal responsibility for that in our own lives, and we reach out to the brothers and the sisters that are next to us, a beautiful transformation takes place. When we behold God and that fruit bears out of our life, We watch other starving brothers and sisters feast on the fruit that's in our life just like we'll feast on the fruit in their life in a season to come where we're in a dry and weary land. But it starts with a recognition of who God is. And so this fellowship that we're talking about here, though it's spelled out for us very specifically in the New Testament, I think fundamentally goes way beyond that. The fellowship that we're talking about here serves as the context in which we experience The blessings that come with knowing and loving God together as a body, inseparable from one another. It's not easy, but it is good. It doesn't come naturally, but it isn't optional. It's not always clean, but it is a requirement. Uh, Pastor Doug Wilson says it this way. He says, We must deal with far more than the simple issues that attend membership in a religious club that meets once a week. Learning to live means shared meals. It means watching one another's children. It means helping with births, helping with weddings, giving ourselves to the education of our children, learning what it means to die well. We do not want to isolate any aspect of the human experience and then exclude that aspect from our shared lives together. It's transformational because it's comprehensive. It's transformational because it's transparent. And it's transformational because it's what we're called to. That community that we're a part of in the body of Christ causes us to do very specific things that we wouldn't do otherwise. And the result is looking more like Christ. So the question is, why do we avoid this, and what are, what are the results of that? I mentioned a little while ago that it's, it's really easy to trade fellowship for friendship, uh, I think because, in part, friendship just requires less of us. But whatever, whatever we gain in the moments by not participating in the hard work that is biblical fellowship, we'll lose in the end. It will be our loss. We will be the ones who look less like Christ in this life when we fail to participate in the kind of biblical fellowship that causes us to know and to cherish Christ more. But we avoid it for any number of reasons. One of the reasons, I think, just plainly, is that it's hard to replicate. It's hard if you've been in true biblical community before. It's hard to replicate that. If you've been part of that and it's been disrupted in any measure, my tendency is to pretend as if it'll never happen again. When my best friend moved uh, uh, out of town in 2017, I, I, I experienced probably for the first time in my life actual, like some measure of loneliness. I didn't know what it was. I was like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just kind of like, sad sometimes, and I don't have anyone to spend time with, Right. And uh, thankfully, my, my wife was wise enough to recognize, she's like, I think you need friends, <laughs> right? And, and immediately, I was like, what friends? What in the world? How, how like, they've always, it's always it was just sort of been there. That's always been a thing that has been available to me, and it required an intentional pursuit specifically of other believing men in my life to help fill that void, and there was no substitute for it. So it's, it's, it's a hard work to participate in producing that kind of biblical fellowship. It requires a kind of pursuit of one another that probably mirrors the kind of pursuit that you had of your spouse if you're married. It's a totally distinct relationship from that, but it requires being intentional. It requires following up and inviting them to things. It requires a measure of vulnerability to put yourself out there. But I think one of the reasons that we fail to participate in biblical fellowship is because it's hard. I think one of the other reasons is, uh, I mentioned earlier, just uh, general ignorance. (laughs) I think if you haven't experienced biblical fellowship, it's easy to mistake friendship for fellowship. It's real easy to show up on Sunday and participate in the club that is Crossway Chapel Wilmington and then go home and not speak to anyone in between. And if if it's not apparent to you already, that isn't sufficient. I think one of the other reasons we fail to participate in biblical fellowship is out of fear. I mentioned a moment ago, it requires a measure of vulnerability. But being vulnerable with others puts you at risk of being hurt. Being known by other people leaves you susceptible to that fallen individual letting you down somehow. Church, don't let that be a reason that you don't participate in biblical fellowship. I think sin plays a large role in why we fail to engage one another in biblical fellowship. One of the most common lies that we believe today, if you're in the church, if you're in the body of Christ, one of the most common lies we believe is that our life has no bearing on the brother or the sister next to us. We, we, We forget the fact that we're part of a body together and we act as if a dying member of that body doesn't impact the rest of the body. When you add to that, the cry from our culture, from our society, that, that the mark of maturity is individualism and self-sufficiency, it's not surprising that many of us withdraw from one another and think we're doing a good thing or think, at the very least, that it doesn't matter. But I actually think the primary reason that we don't age in biblical fellowship with one another is because of familiarity, The opportunity for biblical fellowship at this place and time, right now, at Crossway Chapel Wilmington in 2022, is abundant. There is real, meaningful opportunity for you to connect to the brothers and the sisters in this room, and if you're like me, sometimes it sounds like more trouble than it's worth. Sometimes when it's time to go to or to host Life Group or to engage other people meaningfully, The temptation is for me just to check out, because it's been a long day, and I've got four kids, and we've got baseball and piano and dance coming up this week, and it would just be easier for us if we could just take a night off. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as many of you know, uh, spent two years disconnected from Christian community when he was a prisoner of the Nazis in Germany from 1945 to 1947. This gave him a unique perspective on the importance of Christian community, And he said just prior to his execution that it is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual to have Christian companionship, but it's easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. Amen. I I know I'm guilty of that. I know I'm guilty of all of the reasons that we just mentioned for why I might withdraw from biblical community. It takes work. There's some fear involved. There's plenty of sin that keeps me from doing it. But God's word tells us that when we do that, that's little more than just self-inflicted church discipline. When we withdraw from the one another's of the New Testament, when we, when we withhold ourselves from meaningful biblical fellowship, no matter how valid the reason might feel in the moment, we are literally subjecting ourselves to what the Bible says is the most severe form of church discipline in the New Testament. We are a body, and if we don't one another well, then we can't expect to be spiritually healthy individually and corporately. And this kind of community requires a lot of us. But the alternative, as we saw in Ephesians 4 earlier, the alternative to being in that kind of engaged, active community with one another is to be tossed to and fro like children, being subject to all kinds of doctrines and deceptive philosophies of man. And so if you're a believer in the room this morning, I want to challenge you to think about one or even two names of people in your life right now that you think meet this high calling of biblical fellowship. Depending on the season of your life you're in, that might be easier than, than others. But I want you to really think about who in your life right now meets this high calling of biblical fellowship. And again, I would say not just going through the motions of the one another commands, but really prompting you and knowing you enough to cause you to cherish Christ more. Who are those people in your life? If you struggle to answer that, and I would submit that most of us do, because you struggle to answer that, one of the things I would encourage you is to not delay in building relationships. We've got 12 life groups in this church, and I think about half of them now meet on Sunday nights. So you could literally start that tonight. And it's going to be hard and messy and awkward just like I'll bet most of the meaningful relationships in your life began, it's going to be messy and require something of you, and you will put yourself out there with some individuals, and there won't be much of a connection there. But to withdraw entirely is to cut yourself off from the rest of the body. If, by God's grace, you can think of some individuals in your life right now that meet that calling, even if it's just one, then I would, consider you, I would encourage you to consider how the one another commands that we just listed can help you pursue the kind of relational intimacy that are supposed to define that biblical fellowship. If you're in the context of some of those relationships right now, and I don't mean within your own home, that's assumed. Outside of your home, men with men and women with women, meaningful relationships, meaningful brotherhoods and sisterhoods, how can those one another commands prompt each of you to know and to love God more. But the foundation for that fellowship is rooted in our common conviction of who God is. And so if you're hearing this this morning and you're struggling to answer either of those questions because you aren't in the faith, then I would encourage you to consider the fact that biblical fellowship that we're talking about, that kind of biblical fellowship, is only possible for those who have been made alive by God's saving grace. That those of us who are participating or attempting to participate in that kind of fellowship that's outlined for us in places like Ephesians twelve and 1 Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12 is only possible because we have a relational intimacy with the Father, despite ourselves. Relational intimacy with the rest of the body presupposes relational intimacy with the Father. And this is impossible without a clear understanding of who Christ is and what he has accomplished on our behalf. The Bible tells us that every one of us in this room is deserving of eternal separation from God as a result of our sin, but that Christ not only lived a perfectly sinless life, but then willingly took on the penalty that we deserved, and in exchange, we receive his righteousness, such that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sin that is so obviously there to us, but we are credited with the righteousness of Christ instead. And once that transaction takes place, you are eligible to participate in the kind of life-altering community that's described in the New Testament. But if that transaction has not taken place in your life, do not leave here today without giving that the consideration that it's due. For those of us who have been made alive who do find ourselves of active, as active members within that body, the charge is to know him and to love him more as we do this life together. You need it. I need it. More importantly, it's commanded by God. That is the only means by which we'll know him better is through his word and through his people. And so to that end, let's pray. God, we confess that our lives are filled with so many distractions that cause us to disparage the good gifts that you've given us, most notably the gift of salvation that you extend to us in the person of your Son, God, we we just start by recognizing that that's the only thing that makes a prayer like this or a service like this possible. But God, it's that same grace that, that puts breath in our lungs and makes it possible for us to do life together. And I pray that as a church body, as your body, with Christ as our head, that we would not neglect that. That we would take seriously the call that we have to love one another in this way. And that loving one another would not be an end in and of itself, but that it would prompt us to know you more, to be completely captivated by who you are as we eat of the fruit that's borne out in one another's lives. So help us to do that, God. we're, We're left to ourselves totally desperate for you there. And we thank you that you have given us a church body and a home to live that out, to do that wrong, to learn how to do that better. And most importantly, we we, we thank you for the grace of your Son that when we do that wrong, our standing with you doesn't change. And so we love you, and we pray that you would continue to bear these things out in your life, uh, in our lives, uh, despite ourselves. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.